Well, it's, uh, it is a good privilege to be uh, up here with you guys this morning, uh, to be invited to uh, bring the word uh, for us uh, and to lead us into the word as we continue our series, uh, Walking Through the Psalms. Um, a little bit about me, uh, my name is Ira Bramer and I have the privilege of leading rock students here uh, at PW and I've been in that role for a little over eight months and it has been uh, such a joy to uh, get to work with our students. Uh, we just got back from camp just a few weeks ago and we had an awesome time. Uh, maybe you've heard a little bit about it if you have a student. Uh, we had a blast. I know high school, uh, they had their own adventures and middle school had uh, some adventures of their own as well. Got maybe a little bit uh, broken down in a bus on the way home, but we made it back and that's student ministry. You just kind of roll with the punches. Um, but as a, as a rock student ministry, we are a community for all students to find and follow Jesus. And if you have a student or if you are a student and you're not connected to the rock, let me invite you to join us uh, for midweek each week. Uh, it's on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8.30 every week, and we will resume uh, this coming Wednesday. So I invite you to join us. Also, uh, for those of you in the room, I've got some exciting news. We've got a middle school community that we are launching come Sunday, September 25th. Uh, it'll be during the 11 a.m. service, during the 11 a.m. service. And we'll have more information to you as we get closer to that. Uh, but just keep that in your mind. Middle school community coming Sunday, September 25th. Uh, but hey, enough about the Rock students. That's not why we're here, right here, right now. We are here to dig into the Word of God. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 16 this morning. Psalm 16 this morning. Uh, and... In it, we find a lot of uh, path language. We find a lot of path language. Uh, you could think of it as uh, almost kind of this picture of the path of life. Uh, I don't know about you, but I really enjoy um, hiking. One of, my, uh, one of the blessings and benefits of moving up to this area is that I get to hike again. Uh, if you know, Florida is not like your best hiking area. Uh, it's a little hot. It's a little too hot, and it's all flat. So a uh, beach, awesome. Hiking, not so much. Um, yeah, anyways, but uh, I love getting out to Shenandoah. I've had a, a couple chances to get up there, log a couple miles, uh, a little over 25 or so now. Um, and it's been a privilege, but I would tell you, I'd be totally lost if I didn't have some of those trail maps. I've got like maybe like 15 of them now. I feel like every single time I go into the park, they hand me one, I'm like, I don't need another one. I got it, I'm fine. I've got like four in my car and... Uh, for my backpack, it's, it's too many. Uh, but in it, you've got all these uh, trails. You've got over 500 mi uh, miles, I believe, of hiking trails in Shenandoah, and you need a map, or else you're going to get lost. Uh, and in this uh, psalm, what we find is David essentially gives us a roadmap for life. In Psalm 16, David depicts the journey of life and the fact that we need a roadmap, and he lays it out. You see, David himself, he understood this path. He understood uh, what it meant to be lost, and he knew the fate of those who wandered aimlessly. And so he gives us a roadmap through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at this together this morning. Beginning in verse number one, David writes this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What do you turn to in times of trouble? What do you turn to in times of trouble? You see, the psalmist opens with a prayer. He opens with a prayer. He says, preserve me, O God, now, we don't know specifically the background of this psalm, per se. We don't know all of the circumstances that David finds himself in. We don't know necessarily the occasion that led him to write this psalm. We do know that uh, many of the psalms David writes as he is on the run and in, in times of desperation and urgent need. He also writes many psalms in times of peace on the, on the back end of victory. 
When you think of the many psalms that came out of the places, he is fleeing for him, Saul for his life in the cave. When he's running from his enemies. David was well acquainted with the troubles of this path of life. And you see, all of us, all of us are prone to troubles on this path of life. And it's not necessarily the circumstances of this psalm that matter. What matters is the content and the object of his prayer. That here he is, he finds himself potentially in a place of trouble because this language suggests, he says, he says preserve me, O God. So this language suggests that he's in trouble and trouble follows all of us. So what do you turn to when you find yourself in trouble? What do you turn to when you find yourself in trouble? What you turn to in trouble is your functional savior. What you turn to in trouble is your functional savior. And that can be for all of us, even as followers of Jesus who have put our faith and hope in Christ when we find ourselves in trouble, we can turn to so many other things way before we ever go to the Lord. We can turn to our job. We can turn to our finances. We can turn even into our, our very family. We can turn to a hobby. We can turn to our phone. We can turn to a TV show. What you turn to in times of trouble is your functional savior. And here, David, in whatever state he is in, he finds himself in some need of help and he says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. He directs his prayer to the Lord. And we see this all throughout his journey in life, all throughout the Psalms that he's penned. He says, preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. And then he continues, I have no good apart from you. My old pastor, Pastor Joby Martin, the church that I was a part of in Jacksonville, Florida, he would always say, and I agree with him, that the three most dangerous words that anyone could ever say are, I got this. The three most dangerous words that anyone could ever say is, I got this. You see, Religion and self-righteousness, that is the native tongue. I got this. In fact, that's the native anthem and language of our hearts. That that is our natural inclination to say, you know what? I got this. Doesn't matter what's going on. I can fix it. I can make it happen. And in fact, as a culture, we elevate this. We champion those who pull themselves up from their bootstraps we champion those who are self-starters and came from nothing and built something with no help. And guess what? That's just not true. There's no one that has gotten everything that they have surely by the, just the work of their hands alone. That David is saying, apart from you, I have no good. He is recognizing his total dependence on the Lord, that everything that he has is a gift from above. He's recognizing that I don't got this. I can't do this. And here is a, here's a king of a mighty nation who reigned on a throne and ruled over thousands, maybe even millions in commanded armies. And in this time of need, he's like, I don't got this. Apart from you, I have no good. You see, as a people, we prize our autonomy. We seek it out. It's all that we want. In times of trouble even, we run from the very one who can give us help, the very one who's given us everything that we have. We say, I got this. We think to ourselves, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. It's the very air that we breathe. It is part of our nature and it's certainly elevated and prized in our culture, in our nation, right here in the greater DC metro area. I got this. So you put your head down, you put your nose to the grindstone 
and you steer a ship that you were never meant to captain. I got this. Thing is, though, is you don't got this. David recognizes who God is. Right here, in the very beginning of this psalm. The very beginning of the path of life. It starts with a a recognition of who God is, that he is praying to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the one who created all that is. He's the one that created the foundations of the earth with just a word. And he recognizes this is who God is, and he recognizes who he is. I'm just a mere mortal man. I am creation, and he is creator. I am creation, and he is creator. You see, God is God. He says, you are my Lord. God is God. You are not. I am not. And that's okay. God is God. You are not. He prays to Yahweh, this covenant-keeping God, and he declares his utter need for him. You see, David recognizes that all that he has, his good, is from God. His very kingdom, his very influence and authority, his anointing, it's all a gift from above. And he recognizes that apart from him, I have no good. This is both a declaration of his dependence on God and his gratitude for what God has given him. It's both a declaration of his dependence on God for who he is and also a declaration of his gratitude for what God has given him. In other words, he's saying, you are my good. You are my good. And he's saying this in circumstances where he's calling out for help. He can still say, you are my good. He's in trouble, but you are my good. His dependence on the Lord leads him to delight. It leads him to delight. Then he continues in verse three. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. You see, delight in the Lord, it overflows into delight for his people. Delight in the Lord overflows into delight for his people. This is why here specifically we emphasize love for God and love for others, that love for God always naturally overflows into love for others. You see, you can't love Jesus and hate his bride. You can't love Jesus and hate his bride. But we live in kind of a a current cultural moment of a version of Christianity that people want to claim, I love Jesus. I just want nothing to do with the church. I love Jesus. I just, I want nothing to do with the church. And if that's maybe your experience in this room, let let me just encourage you that, yes, the, the church is broken. It's full of broken people, myself included. But love for Jesus always overflows into love for his bride. That we as the church are his bride, the very bride of Christ. And anyone who would claim to love Jesus, that love should always flow into love for the people he laid his life down for. No matter how broken, that he loves you just as he loves me, even in our brokenness. And here's David, and he's saying, My delight is in the saints. Would we be a people that don't just gather week in and week out to sing some songs and hear the word? Those are good things, but we'd be a people that are just marked by the love of Jesus, that are marked by the love for one another because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That love for Jesus leads to love for his bride. I can't say to James, Pastor James, Pastor James, I love you. But don't get me started about your wife. She is the worst. Like, that's just, 
that's just wrong. That's just, that's not how it works, man. That love for Jesus always flows into love for his bride. Then in verse four, the sorrows of those who run after other God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You see, all roads don't lead to heaven. All roads don't lead to heaven. Unlike our current cultural climate that would like to just think that all roads do lead to heaven. You do you. You follow whatever you want. You follow your heart. It doesn't matter. In the end, we all just end up in heaven. That's the error of our culture today. Just coexist. Just tolerate. That doesn't, not saying don't love, that's not what I am saying, but what David here is saying is that all roads don't lead to heaven. That there is one way. Again, we are all on a path of life. And this path has a destination. And that destination is either to heaven or to destruction. This is what David here is saying. He knew this truth all too well. You see, as the king, maybe, maybe he's thinking about other nations. Maybe he's thinking about other nations. Maybe he, his mind runs to the nation of Egypt. You got Israel who is in captivity and here's Egypt who has gods of everything. They've got a God for everything and they follow them. And then you got the 10 plagues and the sorrow that follows because of their idolatry and they're running after other gods. He would have known this story all too well. Maybe he's thinking about the Philistines. The Philistines were the arch nemesis of Israel at this time. Here's David, the very one who killed Goliath, the Philistine warrior. And maybe he thinks about Philistines and their worship and running after Dagon, who was their god. And before David was king in 1 Samuel, we, we read about uh, this battle that occurs between Israel and the Philistines and the Israelites bring out the Ark of the Covenant as if it was like some charm that would naturally win them the war. The Philistines overcome them, capture and take back the Ark of the Covenant and bring it into the very temple of Dagon. And God starts to kind of play with this false idol, this empty God. And what happens, it's kind of a funny story, is that uh, they'll come into the temple and this idol is like kind of bowing down <laughs> to the Ark of the Covenant. And then they come back in after they fix them up and the temple or the idol is broken. That no one was doing this, but the very presence of the Lord himself. Maybe he's thinking about this. Those who run after other God, another God, their sorrows will multiply. So maybe he's thinking about nations. Maybe he's even thinking about the very nation of Israel, his own people. I mean, you could go back to Egypt. You go back to Exodus. Here they are, they get delivered from their slavery. They get led out into the wilderness. The Lord literally dwells with them in a pillar and in a cloud. And then he takes Moses up onto Mount Sinai and meets with him in such a way that God tells Moses, hey, make sure that none of the Israelites touch the mountain. And here's Moses, he's, he's in the very presence of the Lord. He gets a glimpse of him and his face shines and glows and up on the mountain in Exodus 20, he's getting the very commands of God, the 10 commandments. We know them fairly well. The 10 commandments. And the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. And as God is literally with his hand writing this on a tablet of stone for the nation of Israel, who he just led out of captivity at the bottom of the mountain, here's Israel building a golden calf, bowing to it, saying, this is the God that delivered us from Egypt. Or maybe he, his mind runs to judges, the book of Judges. It's all about the nation of Israel and this cycle of sin which leads to 
judgment, which leads to repentance, which leads to deliverance, which leads to peace, which leads to sin, which leads to judgment, which leads to deliverance. And the cycle goes on and on and on. And it's this gruesome picture of the unfaithfulness of the people of God, but the faithfulness of the Lord and their sorrows that multiply as they run after other gods. David knew this all too well. You see, on this path of life that we're all on, there are multiple little g gods. The enemy, the devil, he's been from the beginning of our time setting up little g gods along our path of life to get us to run after them. In fact, it's a result of our fallen nature. All we ever do is run after them in our own natural inclinations. This has been his aim from the beginning of time. And this is what we do. We run after worthless gods in our fallenness and in our sin. When we think about it in today's language, I think it's helpful to look through the lens of 1 John 2, verse 16, where we're given kind of like three categories of gods and idol worship. And John, he, he gives us these three categories, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life. We can take them each one by one, the pride of life. You can think of this as the approval of man. This is, I want to be something. I'm going to be something. I'm going to make myself something. I got this. This is prestige and pedigree. Man, we see this all around us here. The pursuit of this thing, the rat race around us. We think to ourselves, if I could just get into that school, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just get that job, that internship, that membership, that degree. Maybe it's a specific number in a bank account or an investment account. Maybe it's even your family. If I could just get my family all nice and polished up, we could be something. We think to ourselves, if I could just fill in the blank, then I'd be finally and fully satisfied. It's a part of life. There's desires of the eyes. This is, uh, you can think of this in terms of stuff. Man, stuff, I, if I could just get more stuff. If I could just get that new car. Man, that nice, new, shiny car. If I could get that new house, that bigger house. If I could get those new clothes or new shoes or those new golf clubs, then I'd be finally and fully satisfied. The thing is, it's a cycle, this merry-go-round of normality that we run with, keeping up with the Joneses. And we keep on taking laps, thinking that eventually something that we can attain will finally and fully satisfy us. You get that new car. And then in a, a year, if that, all you can think about as you drive by other car lots is, man, if I could just get that car, then I'd be finally fully satisfied. The shine wears off. Think of it in terms of stuff. And then the last one is the desires of the flesh that he gives us. This is the desire to feel a certain way. I want to I wanna feel a certain way. This is chasing fulfillment through another person or on the end of a screen. Maybe it's that feeling you get at the end of a bottle or through a, a substance or the feeling that you get when you look in the mirror. Maybe it's that living for a weekend. We, we get that here. Thank God it's Friday. Maybe it's chasing that next experience, booking that next trip, that dream vacation. One to feel a certain way. If I could just feel free to feel, fill in the blank, then I'd be finally and fully satisfied. See, all of these are little g gods that our world promises to us that will satisfy us, tries to entice us to run after them. 
all used by the enemy to lead us off the path of life. You see, many of these things can even be good things. Even the enemy from the beginning of time has taken good things, the creation of God, and will turn it against us. You see, anything can be another God that we run after. They can be good things. The problem is, it can't be a God thing. You just can't make it your God. Like money, your job, the things that you have, those are all good things, even gifts from God himself. They just make a really bad God itself. It can't be your God. You can't have them as your God because the end only leads to sorrow and despair and destruction. But here's what David says. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. When I, uh, when I first was going through the interview process here, uh, I was flown up here uh, back in early November. And I remember uh, the day before I came here, so I came here on a, on a Sunday, and it was uh, the picnic that I think Kids Quest does every year. But the day before, I had flown in, and I had gotten brunch with our central director of students, and then right after that, I was supposed to head over to Pastor Todd's house, and we we're going to hang out for a couple hours and then have dinner. So while I'm at brunch, um, that's one where I found out that Pastor Todd had been in the Navy, uh, and not just in the Navy, but he was a former Navy SEAL. Uh, I didn't really uh, know that. I had kind of picked up on some things in our like I brief interactions uh, in the interview process and knew for sure that like he had been in the military. He kind of gives off that vibe a little bit. <laughs> but um, I remember I, I had eaten this large brunch and I go over to his house and one, I did get lost. Uh, I had no clue where I was, uh, but I finally made it. And uh, here, we were like sitting outside, we're having good conversation, it gets kind of cold, we head inside, and he's like, do you like steak? I'm like, oh man, yeah, love steak. So he's like, well, got some great custom cuts from this Austrian butcher in town. Uh, we've got this like 24 ounce ribeye and New York strip. You can have whichever one you want. How do you like your steak? I'm like, well, uh, rare. That's, that's, that's true. And one, I also was about to learn that we had very different definitions of rare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pastor Todd, if you're watching this, still love you. Um, <laughs> but he, he throws it on, on the stovetop. He's got a little salted ghee in there, which is a game changer. It's changed the way I cook steaks ever since that experience. Uh, it's just clarified butter. Anyways, uh, it's great. Uh, he, he makes it up. He puts it on this wooden board and sets it in front of me. And I'm like thinking to myself, which I, I didn't need to eat. I just had a huge brunch. And I'm like, where are the sides? Like thinking to myself, where are the sides? This is a piece of meat on a board. That's it, Pastor Todd's house. It's like 24 ounces. Like, and I'm, I'm trying not to over-embellish. I'm pretty sure it was like that massive. It was huge. It was thick. And I cut into it and I realized, oh yeah, we've got very different definitions of what rare is. Um, this looks raw. Um, but I knew, I'm like, I got to eat it all. I got to eat it all. <laughs> there's, there's no way. There's no way that I'm like coming up here if I, if I can't eat it all. And I, uh, I will say I ate most of it. There's like maybe three ounces of just fat left and I'm like, I can't, I can't. It hasn't even rendered. I can't eat that. <laughs> All that to say, um, I got so full. I got so full. The, the steak was one, big enough that there was nothing else you could fit on the plate. And the steak was all I needed. The steak was enough. And what David here is saying, that the Lord is my chosen portion, that he is my cup, what he's trying to illustrate for us is that the Lord is all I need. That the Lord is enough. That this idea and this picture of portion and cup, it's meant to illustrate this sense of exclusivity. That all of us are kind of like holding a plate in the buffet line of life. 
And there are other gods out there to fill your plate up with. And many of us do. But what David is saying is like, just give me Jesus. Just give me the Lord. That's all I need. I don't need anything else on my plate. I don't need anything else in my cup. The Lord is enough. That God alone, he is enough for us. Then he continues in verse six. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see, if the devil can't get you to blatantly and rebelliously run after other gods, he'll try to make you discontent. He'll try to make you discontent. If he can't get you to reject the word and to reject the church, he'll push you towards joyless religion, towards stale tradition, towards lifeless duty, towards heartless obedience. He'll aim to get you to despise the very seat that you fill. To despise and resent the very sermons that you hear. To despise and resent the very songs that you sing. He can't get you to run after another God. He'll just get you to play church. He'll just get you to be discontent. David says the lines or the boundaries have fallen for me in pleasant places. David delights in life with God. He delights in the life that God has given him. He delights in the limits that God has drawn for him. You see, he doesn't see them as burdens. He sees them as an invitation to walk with the Lord these burdens and boundaries that the Lord has drawn for him. You see, all of us have limits. All of us have boundaries. We are created. The problem is we so often resent them and push against them to seek our own autonomy, to be free to do as we please. But we are given our boundaries, our limits as an invitation, as a pathway to walk with him to follow him. You see, they are boundary lines of the path that God has placed us on, the limits that we have in our life. They're an invitation to walk with the Lord, to know him and enjoy him. You see, true religion, it embraces the yoke of Christ. True religion embraces his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light. True religion delights in obedience, is happily on mission and joyful in the work. He says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. You see, he lifts his eyes off of his focus of his immediate circumstances. And he fixes his gaze towards a future hope takes his eyes up off of his circumstances and fixes his gaze on a future hope. You see, we don't follow Jesus because he makes life better. We follow Jesus because he is better than life. This is what the Psalms are all about. That on our path of life, if we just follow him because we're trying to get a better life now, that mindset will never persevere through the troubles and the trials that we find ahead of us, which are actually used as invitations to take us deeper into his blessings, into his joy. And we don't follow Jesus because he makes life better. We follow him because he is better than life. And we can take heart because we have a future. That in Christ Jesus, we have a future. Did I have a beautiful inheritance? I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. You see, the word of God is a map and a mirror. 
The word of God is a map and a mirror. It's a mirror in the sense that it shows us who we are in our sin. It shows us our need for a savior. It's a mirror. It's what the commandments are all meant to do. It's to show us our sin. And it's a map because it directs us in our path. It shows us our purpose in this life. It shows us the meaning of life. And the Holy Spirit, he is given to us as our instructor. He applies the mirror to our life. He shows us and leads us in this map of life. That the Spirit of God, he's the true preacher. It's not me. It's not Pastor Todd. It's not even Pastor David. That the Spirit of God, the very Spirit that filled Christ and raised him from the dead is the Spirit who is committed to teaching us the word of God, the truth. Day in and day out, we don't just need to come here and hear from some person. On a weekly basis, we have the Spirit of God who instructs us and teaches us. He's the true preacher. And then he continues, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Think about uh, when I was first learning to drive. Uh, I had some trouble kind of staying in the lines it's kind of like drift a little bit. I don't know if, if you've learned to drive or if you've taught someone to drive. Maybe you've had that as your experience. But I would kind of like drift a little bit. And I remember my mom, uh, who would kind of like help me and she was teaching me. She, she told me, she's like, you got to lift your eyes up from right in front of you. Because the problem was I was looking at the road right in front of me. She's like, you got to fix them on the horizon. And I made this little adjustment in my focus it became way easier to just drive straight on the path. And my focus was off. It was on the wrong thing right here in front of me, but I had to fix my eyes upwards. This is what David is saying. I've set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. It's also kind of like learning to ride a bike. You know, when you're trying to learn to ride a bike, you try to do it on your own, you keep falling over. And then maybe your dad or mom or a parent, somebody comes beside you and holds onto the handlebar and onto the back of the seat. And they run with you and walk with you as you pedal. The problem with this illustration is it kind of falls apart because we make the goal to ride solo. But the goal of the path of life is to have the Lord before us and beside us that we can take heart no matter what comes our way on this path of life because he goes before us and he walks beside us that you don't journey and walk alone. That he holds you safely and securely in his hand. Verse 10. David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now here in this psalm, things kind of shift a little bit. For the most part, this psalm has been applying directly to David himself as he writes this. But you see, this verse only half applied to David. We know that because of David's trust in the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, Yahweh, his soul was not abandoned to Sheol. But the reality is, he did die. He did see corruption. And if this was only about David, then this psalm would kind of leave us with a couple question marks as we try to consider our own path of life. But ultimately, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, he's talking about Jesus. That's in Acts that both Peter and Paul use this verse to prove the resurrection of Christ stating that David here was talking about Jesus himself. You see, David died, but his lineage continued. There was a promised Messiah in 1 Samuel that there was gonna be a Messiah to come from his lineage. 
that the Lord was gonna build him a house and a kingdom that would reign forever. And Jesus is the greater David. He is the one that this Psalm is truly about. If you look again through this lens at verses one and two, that he is the one who humbly and fully took refuge in the Lord. That this Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That he is the one in verse three who fully loved the saints, the people of God. This Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, having loved them to the end. That Jesus humbled himself that we might be lifted up. That he was despised and rejected that we might be loved and accepted by the Father. Verses four through seven, that he loved God with all, never running after another God. He was perfect in obedience to the Father. This Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. This Jesus who, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned perfect obedience through what he suffered. That it was Jesus who fulfills verses eight through 10 that his perfect joy in God prizing the glory of God above everything else, carried him to Calvary. It preserved him through abandonment on the cross, filled his final breath as he gave up his life, awakened him from the grave, and it lifted him to glory, to the throne room of heaven where he is seated on the throne for all eternity. This Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus is the greater David. That the grave, it couldn't hold him. That Jesus is the true King. And his kingdom and his throne is forever. He will not let his Holy One see corruption. This is Jesus. He is the promised Messiah, the savior of the world. And the point of this message and the point of this Psalm is that the path of life is a person and his name is Jesus. The path of life is a person. His name is Jesus. It's not a set of rules. It's not a set of action items and next steps for you to do in and on your own by your own merit and your own work. The path of life is a person and his name is Jesus. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That the path of life is a person and his name is Jesus. That life is found in him. Eternal life. A life of joy in him. That sin had separated us from God. That our running after other gods because of our fallenness has separated us from his holiness. Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden. It separated us from God. But Jesus came and he laid down his life to shed his blood as a propitiation, which means a payment to satisfy. 
repay the sin debt that we owed and it is finished as he pressed up on those near pierced feet and gave up his last breath it is finished by the shedding of his blood he came to purchase our freedom and to reconcile us to God and by faith in Jesus we are forgiven we are forgiven of our sins and we are restored to a right relationship with him we are welcomed into life and life itself and he is life And now as children of God, we are welcomed into the presence of our loving Father. We're granted access to joy in Jesus. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, that it counted for you, child of God. You can now enjoy him now and forever. That this is the chief end of man. This is your purpose in life to glorify him and enjoy him forever. To know him and enjoy him now and for all eternity. You see, David wasn't perfect. He wasn't. We don't know exactly when he wrote this, but we know the rest of his story. We know about Bathsheba. We know about Absalom. We know how the end of his rule and reign finished over Israel. That he had fallen and veered. But in repentance on the Lord, he cast himself on the mercy of the covenant-keeping God, the one who is faithful. And Jesus, he came as the greater David and was perfect in his obedience and he never failed. He never sinned. That he is enough, that he paid it all and he won't cast you aside. He won't abandon your soul to Sheol, which is a godless eternity. So turn to him. Look to him. Take on his yoke, which is easy, and his burden, which is light, and you will find life and joy today and for all eternity. So as we get ready to wrap up, let me ask you this question. What path are you on? What path are you on? That we're all on a path of life and either leads to life or to destruction. Jesus is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. Do you know him? Have you found joy that's found in life in him? Because apart from him, the end of your path only leads to destruction, an eternity of sorrow apart from him. And if you are under the sound of my voice, whether you're in person or you're watching online, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want to invite you to surrender your life to Jesus right here and right now. That Jesus, he came and he called everyone to repent and believe and repent. It's a directional term. It's path language. You're heading in one direction. But the word repent is meant to get us to stop, to recognize that we're heading in the wrong direction. The end of this path only leads to destruction and to turn, to make a change in direction and to follow in the right way. And Jesus is that path and he calls us to repent, to acknowledge been heading in the wrong direction that I am a sinner in need of a savior to believe in Jesus the one who came the son of God who shed his blood and rose again for you to believe that what he did on the cross it counted for you and to confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord and savior of my life so right now as we bow our heads and close our eyes 
we bow our heads and close our eyes, if that is you, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, but you want to right here, right now, as a sign of your decision within your heart to admit and believe and confess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, would you slip your hand up if you're in the room this morning as a sign, our sign of this decision? I want to surrender my life to Jesus. And if you're watching online and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, we want to walk with you. We want to celebrate with you. Can I pray for us? Lord Jesus, we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, the source of our joy and our life, we look to you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the life that is found in you. thank you for those who have surrendered their life to you and found the joy that is only found in you, our life, our eternal life. We praise you, in Jesus' name, amen. We're, uh, we're going to do something a little, maybe different this morning. See, the gospel, it demands a response. The gospel demands a response, and we're going to respond this morning. We're gonna respond in three ways. We're gonna sing. We're gonna sing songs of praises to the one who is our joy and our very life. We're gonna pray. I encourage you where you're at during the songs maybe to pray. Maybe it's praise of gratitude and thanksgiving for him giving you life and the fact that you can enjoy him right here and right now or maybe it's even to come forward or to turn your chair into your own personal altar and pray and confess. Maybe you have been running after other things. The third way we're gonna respond is we're gonna observe communion. We're gonna remember the finished work of Jesus on the cross. See, the gospel demands a response and we're gonna respond this morning. So as the Spirit leads. Let us respond as the band sings.